we have shut down the surgical ward inside the hospital. We have uh, turned off uh, the oxygen generator. As Israeli troops encircle northern Gaza, hospital workers there say the situation is desperate and dangerous. For Saturday, November 11th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. We'll take a close look at Ohio and Virginia, where abortion politics played an outsized role in this week's election results. And we'll review Donald Trump's week in court. It does seem like Donald Trump is playing to two different audiences. The main audience here is the judge, but Donald Trump is also playing for an audience outside of this courtroom. We'll also meet one of the last remaining witnesses to the time the U.S. military shot an atomic weapon out of a cannon. Everything shook. I was never in anything like that. Just everything just shook and shook. And Henry Winkler jumps the shark. First news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. House Speaker Mike Johnson has unveiled the text of a short-term government spending bill. It's an attempt to keep federal agencies funded past a November 17th deadline. But as NPR's Eric McDaniel reports, it's unclear whether the stopgap measure has the votes it needs to pass the lower chamber. The two-step plan announced Saturday involves extending funding for some federal agencies through mid-January and others until early February. Johnson says the split places House Republicans in the best position to fight for conservative victories. The speaker unveiled his plan after days of conversations in which he had hoped to find an approach that would unite the party. Already, though, Representative Chip Roy has announced his opposition to the plan, calling it, quote, 100 percent clean, meaning it lacks spending cuts and new policy provisions. The early defection is bad news for Johnson, who has a wafer-thin majority and can't count on Democratic support. Eric McDaniel, NPR News, Washington. A military band and choir paid tribute to the nation's veterans during a ceremony at Arlington National Cemetery today. After laying a wreath at the tomb of the unknown soldier, President Biden honored the generations of Americans who stood on the front lines of freedom. Every year, on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, we gather in this sanctuary of sacrifice to pause, to pay tribute to these patriots of the greatest fighting force in the history of the world. The president also honored his late son, Beau Biden, who served in the Delaware Army National Guard and was deployed to Iraq in 2008. He died of brain cancer in 2015. Palestinian officials say Gaza's largest hospital is under complete siege. NPR's Lauren Frere reports that Israel denies targeting the hospital, but says its soldiers are clashing with Hamas militants nearby. Doctors Without Borders says Gaza's hospitals are under relentless bombardment and that the largest one, El Shifa, has been hit multiple times. Israel says Hamas's main command center is underneath the hospital. Palestinian officials and hospital staff deny that. Gaza's health ministry says the embattled El Shifa hospital has now run out of fuel and suspended operations. Some of the thousands of people who've sought shelter there say they're watching Israeli tanks roll towards them. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu Yahoo is pushing back at calls from his Western allies to do more to protect Palestinian civilians. He says it's Hamas who's using them as human shields. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, Tel Aviv. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. Seven people have been arrested after a protest on the Brandeis University campus turned violent. The university banned a pro-Palestinian student group earlier this week over its social media posts supportive of Hamas. A Brandeis spokesperson says campus police demanded the protesters leave after they started using language the university defined as hate speech. Massachusetts officials are encouraging low-income residents to start applying for fuel assistance before the winter gets underway. The state's low-income home energy assistance program officially launched for the season November 1st. Claire Higgins is executive director of Community Action Pioneer Valley. It distributes aid in western Massachusetts, and she says demand was high last year. I would expect that we're going to see at least the same amount, if not more, because some of the pandemic relief that people have been getting, for instance, the increased uh, tax credit for children, et cetera, are not as available anymore. Higgins says those using gas or electric utilities will be protected from having their heat cut off for non-payment. Boston is home to more than 100 murals full of vibrant color. Roxbury Community College has just added the latest. Boston muralist Roberto Chow led a team of two dozen artists of color to create the work. WBUR's Jacob Garcia reports. A Ode to Africa illustrates the journey and shared experiences of Africans coming to the Americas. The 85-foot mural is filled with quotes like, Know the past to build the future. Katura Millian is a student at Roxbury Community College. She points out a Creole proverb in the mural that she's heard all her life as a Haitian. This one right here that say me and Pilshai Palu, it's like basically it means that a lot of people came together and did that. So it seems easy. The mural took over 2,000 hours of community effort to complete and can be seen from Columbus Avenue. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Jacob Garcia. It's 47 degrees at 506, clear tonight 20s. Sun tomorrow, 40s. Stay with us. WBUR supporters include Viking and Penguin Random House Audio, publishers of My Name is Barbara, the memoir by Barbara Streisand. My Name is Barbara is available now wherever books and audiobooks are sold. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow. Five weeks into the war between Israel and Hamas, there is growing international public outcry for Israel to institute a ceasefire. Hundreds of thousands of people marched in London today demanding it. But today, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said the bombardment and invasion of Gaza will not stop unless Hamas frees all of the Israeli hostages it seized on October 7th. Hamas kidnapped 240 people that day, in addition to killing around 1,200. And since then, Israeli attacks on Gaza have killed more than 11,000 people, according to the health ministry there. And conditions at hospitals in Gaza grow more desperate and dangerous as Israeli forces battle Hamas nearby. A groups say staff cannot leave, even as Israel tells them to somehow get out, just like it's been ordering residents of northern Gaza to flee south. NPR's Ewa Betrawi has this report on the people and hospitals that can't evacuate. And as a warning to listeners, you will hear sounds of explosions and gunfire in this report. Medical workers say thousands of people seeking shelter and hundreds of patients are trapped inside Al-Quds Hospital in Gaza City with no way to leave. All roads that lead to Al-Quds Hospital are closed due to the destruction of the roads and the buildings so no one can get into Al-Quds Hospital or go out of Al-Quds Hospital. This also has resulted in the extreme shortages 
um, of uh, food and water. Nibal Farsakh is a spokesperson for the Palestinian Red Crescent in the West Bank, which runs the Al-Quds Hospital in Gaza City. She told NPR today they've been communicating with staff still inside Al-Quds Hospital through VHF radio waves because all other forms of communication to the hospital have been cut. We have 500 patients inside the hospital who are receiving the medical care in the hospital. We have um, in the intensive care unit around nine uh, patients who are uh, critically injured, connected to life support machines. Most of them are children. We also have a number of babies who are in the incubators. We have around 14,000 civilians. Uh, Most of them are children and women currently centering inside the hospital. So you can't imagine the disastrous conditions that they are living under. She says staff there say they can see bodies on the streets near the hospital but can't reach them. And aid hasn't reached the hospital in at least a week. Fuel is running out. We have turned off the main generator and now only using the small generator. We have shut down the surgical world inside the hospital. We have turned off the oxygen generator and we are now relying on oxygen cylinders. Israel has barred fuel from entering Gaza for over a month, saying it could be used by Hamas. Israeli leaders say the aim of the war is to destroy Hamas so it can never carry out an attack again like it did on Israel on October 7th. Israel's repeatedly called on everyone in northern Gaza and Gaza City to evacuate, including 13 hospitals there, many now without clean water, anesthesia, or iodine to sterilize with. Well, the scale of a health crisis uh, right now is huge. It's a health catastrophe right now, what is happening in Gaza. That's Tarek Jesarovic, a spokesperson for the World Health Organization. He says some hospitals in northern Gaza are performing surgeries by mobile phone light because they've run out of electricity. It's really difficult to, to, to when you have constant uh, arrival of, uh, uh, of patients with trauma injuries, uh, to, to decide when you will actually use the little fuel you have to run generators. Uh, you also need to have a light. You can't just uh, do surgeries uh, with, uh, with, uh, with a flash, uh, flashlight of your mobile phone. There are people dying inside Gaza's largest hospital, Al-Shifa, where its last generator ran out of fuel Saturday. Health officials in Gaza say bodies are piling up inside the hospital with no way to bury them. Doctors Without Borders says Al-Shifa has faced relentless bombardment over the past 24 hours. The group is calling on the Israeli government to cease the, quote, unrelenting assault on Gaza's health system. The organization released a voice memo from Dr. Mohammed Arbaid from inside Al-Shifa, saying the lives of up to 40 babies whose incubators switched off are in peril. Already, two died. Uh, we have uh, two unit patients uh, die actually because the incubator is not working because there is no electricity. So the situation is very, very bad. We need help. The group has medical teams still at Al-Shifa who are treating hundreds of patients inside. Health officials in Gaza say five weeks of Israeli airstrikes and the war have killed more than 11,000 people and wounded another 27,000, most of whom are women and children. Doctors Without Borders says ambulances can no longer move to collect the injured. The group's staff say they're witnessing people being shot at as they attempt to flee Al-Shifa Hospital. Israel's military says the hospital is not under siege and will coordinate with anyone who wants to leave. But it hasn't made clear how people connected to life support can do that. There's intense fighting between Israeli forces and Hamas on the streets.
Tens of thousands of Palestinians heeded calls to evacuate south this week along one road where Israel said it wouldn't attack for limited hours. People with cars were reportedly ordered by Israel to leave their vehicles behind. And so children, elderly and the sick walked for miles with whatever belongings they could carry. Dasneem Ahel says her family considered leaving Gaza City, but are faced with an impossible choice. We can't leave to the south, and there is my grandma, uh, my grandpa, and my grandma, so they can't walk, and we can't hold them also. So this plan was cancelled, and it's terrifying being here under the missiles and the fire. The medical student sent me that in a voice note on Thursday. My messages and calls to her on Saturday didn't go through. Ahel's been sheltering with her parents, younger siblings, and other relatives in an abandoned school in Gaza City. This is what nighttime there sounds like. Closer to us, closer and closer. It comes, death is come closer and closer every single minute, every single second here in Gaza under attack. People are struggling to find water and food to survive. The UN says all bakeries in northern Gaza have shut down. Ahel's family are growing desperate. She says they found a bag of flour amid the rubble of their bombed building. They ate the bread, but it was mixed with debris, sand, and powder from explosives. She told me her relatives tried to flee south a few days ago, but turned back because of Israeli shelling. Aya Batrawi, NPR News. Now to Colombia, where last month leftist guerrillas kidnapped the father of Colombia's biggest soccer idol. As John Otis reports, the crime has cast a harsh light on the Colombian government's efforts to make peace with the rebels. And Diaz in there! Luis Diaz emerged from poverty in northern Colombia to become a star striker for Liverpool, which plays in England's Premier League. But he's drawn even more attention since his father's abduction. And in the most difficult of personal circumstances, it's the stoic figure of Luis Diaz who has rescued them. Diaz responded in Liverpool's next game by heading in a goal. He then lifted his jersey to reveal a message on his undershirt demanding freedom for father. A message to an absent father who is uppermost in his and so many other people's thoughts. His father, Luis Manuel Diaz, was taken hostage by the National Liberation Army, or ELN, a Marxist group founded in the 1960s. It was a stark reminder that even though Colombia signed a 2016 peace treaty that disarmed the country's largest guerrilla army, the much smaller ELN and other criminal bands remain a menace. Instead of trying to topple the government, these days they mainly fight among themselves over drug trafficking routes while extorting businesses and kidnapping people for ransom. That's a fundamental change in the conflict. What they're interested in is controlling local areas. Why? In order to control illicit economies. That's Elizabeth Dickinson of the International Crisis Group. She says the Diaz kidnapping was especially galling because it came amid peace talks between the ELN and the Colombian government. President Gustavo Petro, himself a former guerrilla, has pledged to bring what he calls total peace to Colombia. But rather than attacking the outlaws, Petro is negotiating with them. 
Esa es la complejidad que recibimos. At a recent congressional hearing, Petro's peace commissioner, Danilo Roea, defended this policy. Under the previous government, he said, military offensives backfired, allowing illegal armed groups to expand to 30,000 members. Since taking office last year, the Petro government has declared ceasefires and open peace talks with several of these groups. But Dickinson says the government has received little in return. Part of the problem has been that they have offered too much initially without receiving any reciprocal compromises from the armed groups to reduce violence, to stop recruiting, to improve their behavior. Another hitch, says Kyle Johnson of the Bogota-based Conflict Responses Foundation, is that Petro put inexperienced negotiators in charge of the peace talks. So yeah, you get a ton of missteps as they improvise and don't really have a clear strategy and it kind of creates this perfect storm. The result is that security is getting worse in many parts of Colombia, with a huge jump in kidnappings. No hay voluntad. The rebels have no interest in making peace, declared Colombian lawmaker Duvalier Sanchez at the congressional hearing. Instead, it seems like our government, which is supposed to protect us, is on its knees. Now, Petro's job approval rating is plummeting. In mayoral elections last month, candidates allied with the president lost in Bogota, Medellin, and nearly every other big city. Al señor Luis Manuel Díaz Jiménez, el padre de nuestro jugador. But on Thursday, Colombian TV finally announced some good news for the Petro government and for the Díaz family. Offering no explanation, the ELN released Luis Díaz's father after 12 days in captivity. For NPR News, I'm John Otis in Bogota. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, in a co-production with Speakeasy Stage presents The Band's Visit, playing now through December 10th at the Huntington Theater, huntingtontheater.org. And Stanhope Framers, Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 51 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses, stanhopeframers.com. At WBUR, we occasionally offer you the opportunity to win prizes in conjunction with our fundraising efforts. A pledge is not required. Employees of WBUR and associated sweepstakes entities are not eligible for any drawings or contests. Rules are at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. And Endless Energy, offering home assessments for energy-efficient air conditioning and heating. Learn about rebates exclusive to Massachusetts residents at GoEndlessEnergy.com. I'm Windsor Johnston with these headlines. President Biden is marking Veterans Day. Speaking at Arlington National Cemetery, the president said U.S. service members are the steel spine of the nation. Biden also took part in a wreath-laying ceremony at the tomb of the unknown soldier. The International Red Cross says Gaza's health care system has reached a point of no return. Hamas says the region's largest hospital remains under complete siege. Israel has denied firing directly at the facility. House Speaker Mike Johnson has unveiled the details of a stopgap measure that's designed to avert a government shutdown next week, although it's unclear whether the bill will get enough votes to pass. I'm Windsor Johnston, NPR News in Washington. 
Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Made in Cookware, partnering with chefs like Tom Colicchio to bring professional-grade cookware to restaurants and home kitchens. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. This is a persecution. Felony violations. We need one more indictment. Criminal conspiracy. To close out this election. Innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. It's time for Trump's Trials, our weekly take on the latest developments in the multiple cases former President Donald Trump is facing, all while he runs for president again. This week, we're focused on Trump's New York civil fraud case. The judge in the case has already ruled the Trump organization committed fraud for years, inflating the value of its properties. Trump himself took the stand this week in the trial. We'll get to the details of that testimony in a moment. But first, I want to introduce our panel. Here with us every week, NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. Hey, Domenico. Hey, Scott. And we're also joined this week by Melissa Murray, a lawyer and professor at NYU's School of Law and the co-author of the upcoming book, The Trump Indictments. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So, Domenico, a lot on the line for the Trumps in this trial, right? A quarter of a billion dollar fine, the ability to do business in New York State, the symbolic value of properties like Trump Tower. And again, this is worth repeating at the beginning of this conversation. The determination here is coming from the judge, not a jury. So this testimony matters for Donald Trump. He takes the stand. What did we learn? Well, what was surprising to me is just how much he contradicted his sons. His sons really sort of took this hands-off approach and said, I wasn't really involved in these valuations. I don't remember these emails. You know, yeah, I was on them, but I had other things to do. I don't really know what you're talking about with all of this stuff. Donald Trump Sr., was very much the opposite. He was like, I think this property was undervalued and that property was undervalued, showing he really had his hands very closely tied to these valuations, which is at the core of the fraud case here. Right. And Melissa, this is the center of the case. And again, the judge has already ruled that these financial documents were fraudulent, that they inflated the value of the organization way more than its actual value. And he comes in and says, no, they were worth more than that. I mean, what what did you make of that legally? Well, it does seem like Donald Trump is playing to two different audiences. Um, As Domenico said, the main audience here or the proper audience here is the judge who will make the decision about what the penalties will be in this phase and will determine what punishment Donald Trump will have for the fraud that's already been determined. But Donald Trump is also playing for an audience outside of this courtroom. And there were moments in his testimony where it seemed like maybe he wasn't that concerned about winning this New York fraud case because he had bigger fish to fry elsewhere. And that could be the criminal cases and the criminal liability he is facing in four other lawsuits, or it could just be his presidential campaign. What's a specific moment that made you think maybe he doesn't actually care about the outcome of this trial? Again, like the bombast, like, you know, the square footage of the apartment is a verifiable fact. I mean, maybe there's a little bit of tinkering that one could do on the edges. Like, do you include this closet? Do you not include this closet? But Escalating the square footage of your apartment from 10,000 to 30,000 seems like a bit out of range. And (laughs) he did not bother to rein in any of that. He was like, yeah, it's a huge apartment. There we are. 
kind of what you do with 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 money laundering. <laughs> but, but it's not it's this obviously not a case about that, but it's literally what you would do is just inflate how much at least what I learned from Ozark. But just, but Dominica, he was doing it in real time with the apartment. He was saying it was 10,000. No, actually it's more 11,000. No, it's 12,000. No, it's 13. Like in real time he's just like growing the number on the stand. Yeah, well that's what he did with his net worth when he ran for president the first time. I mean, 2 billion, why not 5? Why not 10? Right. I mean, it, how do you how do you value a brand like Trump's? Right. And this was all about that branding. The fact, though, is his team has always had these tactics in you know law cases to delay. Number one, he tried to delay this case, tried to get it thrown out, didn't work. So this time, maybe Melissa's right. He doesn't care if he wins or loses this thing because he knows the real audience is politics and he's got to keep his base in line. There was one specific defense that Trump kept coming back to, you know, at one point, pulling out this piece of paper, waving it around. He said this gave the the financial statements legal cover uh, for possible uh, inflated value. This was the idea of a disclaimer in the document. Can you explain to us why this matters and what the judge's response was? This disclaimer is the sort of, you know, at the end of these statements, like, yeah, you know, maybe this is not entirely accurate. Like, you know, your mileage may vary is sort of the TLDR of this. Um, here are the numbers, but there's room for disagreement. These are subjective. And that's going to be, I think, the crux of the defense. Um, valuation, especially in real estate, is necessarily subjective. It is particularly subjective, I think they will argue, in the context of this family where so much of their alleged worth is tied up in the family brand and is not necessarily subject to the kinds of traditional valuations that you might see for real estate enterprises that don't necessarily have a, an outlet on television or reality TV, for example. So I think that's a big part of what's going on here. And I think separately, another thing that we're going to see, and you know, the disclaimer is related to that, is nobody was hurt here. The banks made money. Donald Trump made money. No one was deprived of anything in the manner of a traditional fraud situation. What's the state's argument? Who was hurt here? Well, the state seems to be making a very populist argument, which is we're all hurt when Donald Trump cheats like this. Like we're ordinary stiffs who go to get a mortgage and we don't inflate the value of our net worth. We don't inflate the valuations of our existing assets. We have to play by the rules. And here's this guy who never plays by the rules. Well, politically, Trump would say that makes me smart. Right. I mean, that's how he <laughs> talked about his uh, taxes in uh, one of the debates uh, in 2016. And I think that in this case, he would say the same thing. But when it's revealed in court, it stands a little bit differently, especially when the state is really threatening your entire business. One other thing to ask about in that New York courtroom this week, Melissa, that's the fact that Ivanka Trump testified. Uh, she was the last witness called by the attorney general's office. She has been a high profile figure in Trump's orbit. What do we need to know about her testimony? Well, I think if you were expecting the kind of bombast and outburst that you saw with Donald Trump and the recalcitrance that you saw in the two Trump brothers, you didn't get that with Ivanka Trump. She was much more controlled. Um, I believe the attorney general referred to her as cordial. And, and I think that's exactly right. Um, she seemed to be a very willing witness, although not one that could recall the particularities <laughs> of some of the business deals with which she apparently was very closely associated with. That is senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. Thanks, Domenico. You're welcome. And Melissa Murray, a lawyer and professor at NYU School of Law. Thanks, Melissa. Thank you. 
And you can hear more of that conversation on our Trump's Trials podcast. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. What do this week's off-year elections tell us about the political climate? And what do they mean going forward for people living in Ohio, Virginia, and the other states that voted on key issues Tuesday? And Ohio voters decided to establish a constitutional protection for reproductive rights, including abortion. Ballot initiatives to protect abortion rights have now passed in several states since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last year. And in Virginia, Democrats took control of both chambers of the state legislature and will be able to prevent the Republican governor there from instituting limits on abortion going forward. Now that the dust has settled, let's take a step back and look at what this means more broadly for the country as it looks ahead to the 2024 elections. We're going to focus in on Virginia and Ohio. We're going to start with Ohio and Ohio Public Radio's Joe Ingalls. Hey, Joe. Hi. So uh, Ohio is a place where voters were directly voting on abortion rights. Remind us what the law was in the state and what this amendment will do. Well, there was a six-week ban on hold by courts, um, but the Ohio Supreme Court was considering it, and it could have been reinstated. And that ban was put in place hours after Roe versus Wade was overturned, and it remained in effect for 82 days. And you might remember during that time, Ohio got a lot of attention because a 10-year-old rape victim had to go to Indiana to get an abortion Mm -hmm. because the state didn't have exceptions for rape and incest in that six-week law. So this amendment enshrines abortion and other reproductive rights into the Constitution, and it becomes a standard by which state laws are supposed to be applied. Um, There are some 30 laws on the books that have been identified by Democrats as possibly being in violation of this amendment. All right, we're going to come back to what that means going forward and how clear or not clear it is. But but first, is is it fair to call this a surprise? Because on one hand, you've seen this clear trend of state elections since Roe v. Wade was overturned. On the other hand, we have seen Ohio go so far conservative in the past decade or so to the point that presidential elections there aren't really competitive anymore. Right. Ohio's cities are Democratic, okay, and the rural areas are Republican, Um, but the state is gerrymandered. So in the past few elections, the state has skewed more conservative, so Ohio is swinging in the other direction with this week's um, ballot issue. But it confirms some polling that we've seen over the years that Ohioans of every political stripe want at least to some degree to have protections for abortion. All right, let's shift from Ohio to Virginia and uh, VPM's Jad Khalil. Hey, Jad. Hey. So things were a little different in Virginia, right? People were not directly voting on abortion there. Yeah, that's right. So voters were casting ballots uh, for, you know, a lot of different candidates. So there's a lot of different issues and factors that are weighing in into that. That said, abortion rights were definitely a big motivating factor. You know, women always sort of listed it very high. Men did, too. Um, So Republicans were kind of using this as a test case for new messaging. The Republican governor, Glenn Youngkin, tried to sort of coalesce GOP candidates around his proposal of a 15-week abortion ban, and he also included exceptions for things like rape, incest, and the life of the mother. So when they tried to sell it, they didn't say ban. They used words like common sense, consensus limit, or standard. Mm -hmm. And politicals across the country were looking at Virginia as sort of a test case uh, for if this is going to be successful in slowing down the momentum around abortion. And we saw the results of the election, but you also talked to a lot of voters about how they were viewing this messaging. What did you learn? Yeah, so I went to swing districts, and like I said, women always sort of put abortion in the first sentence. There was one woman that stood out to me. She is uh, she's young, she's white, she's in a competitive district in the suburbs. So she's kind of like the main target audience for 
this sort of messaging, right? So I asked her what she thought about it, and she laughed, and she goes, oh, you mean the ban is not a ban? Sort of kind of making fun of it. Mm -hmm. um, she actually is somebody who's against abortion personally, but she said that choice was sort of her um, sort of governing principle when it comes to how she votes on abortion. Interesting. So let's look forward in both places. Joe, I'm going to go back to you at Ohio. There was a six-week ban that had been passed. Now there's a constitutional amendment enshrining these protections. Is it clear-cut here? Does that mean that that law is null and void? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> the reality is the state legislative leaders are not accepting this. Uh, the amendment may not be worth the paper it's written on because 27 of the state's 67 Republicans have already signed onto a letter saying they won't change abortion laws. And their reasoning is that individual laws were not spelled out in that amendment that people voted on. And uh, so they're saying... Um, they, they can't, you know, that people were kind of misled, voters were misled. And now some of the GOP uh, lawmakers are saying they want to overthrow the judicial branch um, and their authority to interpret newly passed con the newly passed constitutional amendment, um, saying that the legislature and not the court should have that power. So that gets this squarely into another growing trend of just pushing back against democratic norms and, and the rule of law and voting outcomes. But but going forward in Virginia, Jad, what is the thinking now that you have a Republican governor and a completely democratic legislature? Yeah, so there's going to be conflict uh, between the legislature and the governor. And I think one thing that's sort of interesting about inertia around laws. So like in Ohio, you had Republicans are able to sort of capitalize on that there was already a, a ban on abortion on the books. In Virginia, they're going to be able to do the opposite and that uh, access is, is protected. Mm -hmm. I think politically also there's an important lesson is that the momentum around abortion uh, is still to the Democrats' advantage. And uh, this new sort of messaging wasn't able to, to sort of stunt that. All right. So the story is not ending in either of these states. Uh, Jad Khalil of VPM and Joe Ingalls from Ohio Public Radio. Thanks to both of you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. All Things Considered from NPR News. As the Israel-Hamas war grinds into its second month, extraordinary scenes are taking place in both Israel and the Gaza Strip. Israeli forces who claim that Hamas is using hospitals as cover are closing in around those northern Gaza hospitals, where doctors are so short on supplies that they're operating without anesthesia. Meanwhile, in Israeli cities, volunteers from various walks of life are coming together to get donations to families displaced by the deadly Hamas attacks on October 7th, as well as to soldiers who raced off to war. And Pierre's Peter Kenyon has been following these volunteers and joins us now from Jerusalem. Peter, what have you been hearing? Uh, well, everyone's watching the Israeli military strikes, which are continuing, uh, and the problems that's causing at the hospitals in Gaza. 
Uh, and meanwhile, on the other side, Hamas is still claiming it's got plenty of weapons, can keep this going for some time to come. Uh, there's a sense here in Israel that people are deeply unhappy with the hardline government. Uh, and yet there's at the same time a big determination to support the war effort. Uh, so I went to visit a donation operation here in Jerusalem. Uh, here's what I found. In a multi-story building in Jerusalem, a room filled with people and laptops is humming with activity. They're tracking the donations that arrive each day and figuring out where each one will do the most good out in the field. I met Rachel Goldberg. She's a nurse by training, and she came here in hopes of helping to ease the suffering of others in this difficult time. You know, we're going through a big crisis. We need you know, to hold hands together until this war is over. Uh, my husband is also here. He's a professor in Hebrew University. He's a brain scientist, and we're trying to help. Rachel and her husband, professor of neuroscience Josh Goldberg, both begin by telling a reporter they have four children, three of whom are currently serving in the military. He says he doesn't want to get political, but it was pretty clear that in the early days, the government was, quote, hard to find, and various organizations have stepped in to pick up the slack. Even some who had spent months protesting Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's push for so-called judicial reform, widely seen as an effort to weaken the Israeli judiciary. In fact, many of the protest organizations who've already been mobilized to protest this government had the infrastructure and the manpower to actually quickly shift and pivot into another mode of activity, and that's what we've been seeing. In fact, it can be seen just down the hall, where one of the leaders of those protests is also busy connecting donations with people who need them. My name is Michal Muscat Barkan. I'm a professor of Jewish education in regular days, and for the last 10 months, I'm one of the leaders of uh, the protest. Barkhan says it wasn't at all difficult to convince her fellow protesters to join the effort to assist those dealing with the Hamas attack. She says soldiers who race to the war may need material goods like warm clothing. Displaced civilians, she says, may also need social and emotional counseling. We face now a crisis that never happened in Israel. It's following a crisis of us feeling that our democracy is in danger. But now we are really in a time that we need to bring all our hearts and abilities. Reporting from Peter Kenyon in Jerusalem. So, Peter, uh, you heard that she was uh, protesting before. Now she's helping, you know, this, this broader organization efforts. Has this crisis brought her any closer to the government? Uh, well, no. Uh, she has watched Netanyahu uh, name hardline hawks to his new war cabinet. She feels quite depressed about that. And this kind of sentiment is being heard in many parts of the country. And Netanyahu's approval ratings have plummeted. Analysts say, barring some political miracle, he's likely to be out of office at the next election. Uh, but despite the very strong political feelings, uh, Barkan and others here say it feels good to be helping. Yeah. She may not be a fan of this government, but she does love her country. NPR's Peter Kenyon in Jerusalem. Thanks so much. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And remember, stay with us at 6 for the Moth Radio Hour. Start your Sunday tomorrow morning with 90.9 WBUR. Hear about a new documentary about the history of racist ideas based on the book by Ibram X. Kendi, Stamped from the Beginning. Weekend edition Sunday starts at 8 a.m. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. After seeing news alerts all day, sometimes it's pretty hard to understand the full story. Get the WBUR mobile app. We'll be there with context and perspective live. Listen anywhere on the WBUR app. 44 degrees at 539.
Thanks for listening. WBUR supporters include Boston Gay Men's Chorus with Green and Gleeful, a whimsical holiday extravaganza. Four shows only, December 10th to 17th. Tickets at bgmc.org. I'm Windsor Johnston with these headlines. President Biden commemorated Veterans Day with ceremonies at Arlington National Cemetery. The president laid a wreath at the tomb of the unknown soldier. Earlier, Biden and the First Lady hosted a reception for veterans at the White House. Congress has less than a week to reach an agreement to avert a partial government shutdown. House Republicans are expected to bring up a stopgap measure to the floor on Tuesday, but it's unclear whether it will pass the Democratic-led Senate. Thousands of demonstrators took to the streets in London today in support of Palestinians in Gaza. The march attracted right-wing counter-protesters who clashed with police. Officials say 82 people were arrested. I'm Windsor Johnston, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, featuring the new 2024 Subaru Crosstrek Wilderness with off-road capability and 9.3 inches of ground clearance designed for adventure seekers. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Ever since Tim Lambert was a kid, his dad would tell him how he would watch two atomic bombs explode when he was in the military. Lambert, a journalist at member station WITF in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, had heard the story countless times, but the most recent time the story came up, he decided to do a little more digging. And he realized the blasts that his dad had talked about were part of a key moment in the Cold War and in the history of nuclear weapons. Lambert started working to find out more. And he realized that his dad is likely one of the last living witnesses to a 1953 test called Shot Grable, when the U.S. military fired an atomic weapon out of a cannon. Tim is with me now. Hey, Tim. Hey, Scott. So tell me about this most recent talk with your dad and why it clicked for you this time. Yeah, my dad and I were having a late breakfast at Denny's, and we were having this conversation, and for some reason I asked him what year it was, and he told me it was 1953, and I thought, well, that was 70 years ago. So I went back and came across some stories about the cannon itself. It's called Atomic Annie, and everybody loves this cannon. It's got like a subculture to it. But the more I looked into it, the more I found out that this was a pretty significant test in the history of the Cold War. So... I think the best place maybe to start with this is is hearing from my dad. My name's Tom Lambert, and I was born in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. I went into the Army in February of 1953. I was assigned to the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment in uh, Camp Pickett, Virginia. I think it was around uh, April that we uh, heard that we were going to uh, Las Vegas to be in an atomic test. We didn't know too much about it. We just knew there was an atomic bomb and there was a mushroom. (laughs) Now, my dad would be part of one of a series of atomic tests that spring, dubbed Operation Upshot Knothole, some 65 miles away from the small but growing city of Las Vegas. Shot Grable 
was unique, however. They were going to test the first tactical nuclear weapon shot from a 280 millimeter gun, and it could be deployed to Korea. For more than 40 years, Martha DeMar worked for what is now known as the Nevada National Security Site. That's the place where nuclear tests were held for decades. She retired in 2021. DeMar says the use of this new, much smaller device was meant to send a message to both the Soviet Union in the early years of the Cold War and to North Korea with the Korean War at a stalemate. It could be deployed to Europe. The end of the Korean War, which is not really the end, but the cessation of hostilities was July 27th, 1953. So think of the timing there. When we got to Camp Desert Rock, Nevada, they were preparing for another test. It was May 19th, and my dad was about to witness true apocalyptic power. It was very, very dark. And an officer came out, the first lieutenant, who we didn't know. She said, now, if you look over a certain way, there's going to be an atomic test. When that went off, it was pitch black. It got so light you couldn't hold your eye, open your eyes. We all ran away from the light, and you could feel the heat on your face 25 miles away. When the light is that bright and you feel the heat on your face that far away, it scares the out of you. My dad knew in just six days he was going to be closer, a lot closer to a test. This one from a cannon and there would be no running away. We woke up early in the morning and they uh, drove us out into the desert and uh, put us in uh, trenches. By the way, those trenches were less than three miles away from ground zero. Everyone kneel down in your foxholes until the command raise has been given. If you stand up too soon, the intense light will temporarily blind you, and the heat will give you the equivalent of a severe sunburn. The projectile is prepared and brought to the gun. The final correct setting for time of burst is made. The breach closed and the primer inserted. I think they fired it from like seven miles away. With everything set now, the gun crew moves back to take positions in slip trenches during firing. And the time is 0830. Four, three, two, one. Then they hollered to us, get up, get up, look at the mushroom. All at once we see this wave coming across the desert. We kept saying, what's that, what's that? About two seconds before they landed, they said, get ready for the shock wave. When the shock wave hit, everything shook. It was just... The whole, I was never in anything like that. Just everything just shook and shook. There were a few uh, trenches that collapsed and there were some fellows that we had to dig out, nothing serious. I mean, just to get them out of it, you know. The orange and red mushroom cloud climbed to the heavens, reaching an altitude of 35,000 feet. 
Within minutes, my dad was told to move out. He was no longer a sightseer. He clambered out of the dirt shelter and walked toward no man's land. When uh, we got in there like that, there were uh, cement buildings and all, and uh, like a brand new school bus that was turned over. We saw several sheep that had burned wool on them, and they told us before that uh, they had rabbits fixed, keep their eyes open when the light came to see how they react. They came with us, to us with uh, Geiger counters, and they said, all right, this is as far as you can go. Because this test was deemed vital to the country's national interest, more than 700 observers were on hand, including dozens of lawmakers and top U.S. military leaders. Archivist Martha DeMar says they witnessed the detonation from a bit less than seven miles to the north of Ground Zero, then moved to where the maneuvers would take place. After the test, uh, the radiological safety team went in to uh, check the levels so that the congressman could come in and they actually witnessed the military coming out of their trenches and heading off to do their maneuvers. And at that time, there were several army bird colonels and they were all around us. They didn't talk to us or look at us or anything. This was critical to show the Soviet Union that we could do this device and get right out there and fight. At this point, strong winds moved in and the maneuvers came to an end. The soldiers returned to their tents. When we got back to the uh, 14-man tents, several of them were blown over. We were only at Camp Desert Rock a couple days after that. We flew back to Camp Pica, Virginia. For my dad, he had carried out his orders. It's hard to think back to what the world was like in 1953. The United States and the Soviet Union were the two dominant superpowers. DeMar says Shot Grable was an unapologetic show of strength by the U.S. We're here to stay. Don't step over the line. If you look at how the world viewed us, we were the only ones to ever use nuclear weapons. And so, you know, that itself should be telling. She says the reverberations of that test are still being felt today. North Korea, they will never, in my opinion, never give up those weapons. They want to be on equal basis as the other superpowers. And so if you have a nuclear weapon, nobody's going to attack you because there is the risk of nuclear war. That shadow is also over the Ukraine war. Russia is trying to change the dynamics by talking nuclear war and tactical nuclear weapons, etc. So it all goes back to basically the first tactical nuclear weapon, which was the, the cannon. We've been listening to the story of Tom Lambert and the testing of an atomic cannon 70 years ago, and we've still got his son, Tim Lambert, here with us. I mean, Tim, this is such a remarkable story. How has your dad felt about being part of it? Well, he was 20 at the time, and, and he talks about just following orders. Um, and he didn't really realize what a historic moment this was, but he is proud of being a part of this 
piece of history. And then he told me that when he watched the video of the cannon firing, when he looks at it, it's just a wonder anyone survived going through just all this. I wonder anyone survived going through all this. Who would have ever thought that someone from a little town like Shanksville would end up in uh, Desert Rock, Nevada, an atomic test? I'm proud of it. I always was proud of it. And Tim, as you've been reporting this story, and since the story's aired locally, you haven't been able to find any other living survivors of this test. Is that right? That is correct. Uh, the story made the rounds on social media after airing on WITF. And, and I heard from a few people whose relatives were part of the test. They were in the desert with my dad. Each one said they had passed away from cancer. Uh, my dad has often wondered if his bouts of skin cancer and prostate cancer were related to his time in the desert. Um, disclosure, he worked in a steel mill for 30 years. Yeah. Um, but neither of the diseases are on the Department of Veterans Affairs list of 21, what they call presumptive cancers, uh -huh. which helps determine any benefits he would receive. Did he ever get any special recognition for doing this? I mean, it's a remarkable thing to be asked to do, to stand there in the middle of a nuclear test. Yeah, he was less than three miles away from this test. Uh, in July of 2022, the Defense Department approved an Atomic Veterans Commemorative Medal. But within the notification documents were a bit of a hedge, and I found this interesting, and, and I'll just say what it says. It states, awarded the Atomic Veterans Commemorative Medal and the Atomic Veterans Service Certificate is not intended to and does not confer any right or benefit, substantive or procedure, enforcement at law, or in equity by any party against the United States, its departments, agencies, entities, or officers. So he gets this medal, he gets this certificate, but it also comes with this disclaimer. Even 70 years later. Yeah. That's WITF's Tim Lambert. Tim, thanks so much. You're welcome, Scott. Thank you. If you were born after, say, 1990, when you think of the actor Henry Winkler, you probably first think of Barry Zuckercorn, the incompetent lawyer on Arrested Development, or maybe the acting teacher Gene Cousinow on the HBO dark comedy Barry. But for those of us born before 1990, he will always be Arthur Fonzarelli, a.k.a. The Fonz, on Happy Days. Because I'm the Fonz, huh? Hey! 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 hey. Winkler and I recently spoke to talk about his new memoir, Being Henry. We talked about a lot, how he first made it onto Happy Days, how he struggled to get new roles for years because of typecasting, and how important going to therapy was for him in later years. But there was one really important question that we weren't able to get on the air when the interview first ran on All Things Considered. Here we go, Fonz! I'm heading for the ramp! Are you sure you want to do it? That's Ron Howard there as Richie Cunningham, driving a speedboat and looking back as Winkler, whose water skiing gives Richie a big Fonz-tastic thumbs up because he is about to inadvertently create pop culture history by jumping the shark. Look at that shark, Fonz. Yeah. How could you accept the challenge? It wasn't me, it was you. I know, I know. I had to ask. You know, Happy Days influenced the culture in so many ways, but of course it, it influenced it in one particular way that, that's still in the culture today, and that is the jump the shark phrase, which for, for better... Yes, right. <laughs> you know all about it, but for anyone who's listening, it doesn't. Uh, generally means a show has, has gone past its prime, it's gotten absurd, and in the book you tell the story about how you jumped the shark and how you were partially responsible for the scene happening by just talking about the fact that, hey, you know, I'm a good water skier. Can you tell us about that? Yes. My short German father would tell me a thousand times, tell Gary Marshall you water ski. 
I said, I'm not telling him I water skied that. One day, I'm talking to Gary, who is my mentor. I miss him. And I say, Gary, I just want you to know, my father wants you to know I water ski. And we left it at that and went on to talk about other things. All of a sudden, there I am. Ron Howard is driving the, the speedboat, and I'm water skiing behind it. In a leather jacket, we got to say. In the leather jacket, which they ripped out the lining to make it easier uh, if I fell uh, to be a little more buoyant, which it wasn't. And it was really hard to be cool in this kind of yellow rubber vest. And I had to ignore it because the funds would not wear this thing. So I'm water skiing, jumping the shark. I, it's the only part of the water skiing I didn't do. That, that, that makes sense, I guess. You didn't actually jump the shark, yeah. No, no, because they, they wouldn't let me do the stunt. Yeah. That was higher than my pay grade. <laughs> and, you know, they showed it. In, at that time, people read newspapers. And every time they mentioned jump the shark, there was a picture of me water skiing. I had great legs at that time, so I didn't matter. <laughs> And we were number one for four or five years after it anyway, so it just didn't matter. That is an important point. You did not jump the shark at the moment you jumped the shark because the show continued pretty well for a while. It did. And I'm the only actor in the universe who jumped the shark twice. Which is true. His character in Arrested Development, Barry Zuckercorn, jumps over a shark in one scene as a wink to viewers in the know. Sunday, Monday, happy days. Wednesday, happy days. Thursday, Friday, you can hear more of my full conversation.